Diamonds are universally valued. Men buy them to promise their forever love to the lady that they want to marry. More money is spent on diamonds than on any other gem. In fact, all other gems combined. Uh, the total value of diamonds mined from, from the earth each year is uh, $9 billion. That's with a B. Billion, nine billion dollars every year mined out of the earth. That's about 57,000 pounds of diamonds that comes out of the earth every year. Something man didn't create. One of the most famous diamonds called the Hope Diamond. It's in the Smithsonian Museum in Washington. You can go, go see it. Uh, it is said to be worth about 250 million dollars. But officially, the Smithsonian says that it's priceless. And when you think about Christian forgiveness, I want you to think about diamonds, particularly priceless diamonds. The diamonds that we can't afford and the kind of diamonds that really aren't for sale. They're truly priceless. And I want you to think for just a minute about how diamonds are formed. Uh, unlike what our scientists tells us, they, they, don't, they don't come from coal and they, don't, they aren't billions of years old. Dr. Andrew Snelling from Answers in Genesis um, tells us that, that likely God formed diamonds on day three of creation. They're formed at just the right pressure, at just the right temperature, taking little, just little particles of of, of really um, of, of graphite and bringing them together. They're, they're formed more than 87 miles deep into the earth. And at just the right temperature and pressure, any deeper, they don't form. And any shallower, they don't form. And in fact, if diamonds were to slowly make their way to the earth, they would crumble. There wouldn't be any. So biblical scientists believe that God brought diamonds to the earth through a cataclysmic event through the flood and the days immediately after the flood to bring them up through the earth in a very quick fashion so that we might be able to enjoy them. But I want you to, to note that it's a, it's a unique combination of temperature and pressure. Though diamonds are hard, the hardest substance, natural substance we know of. They are not stable. They actually, at the right temperature and pressure, will turn to graphite, similar to what you write with your pencil. Now, God created diamonds. And God creates forgiveness at just the right temperature and pressure and time. And like diamonds, God's forgiveness is priceless. Um, like a precious diamond, Forgiveness is a real treasure, a treasure you can't buy, right? And you can't afford to buy it, even if it were for sale. It's a treasure that's made to radiate the glory of our God. And tonight, today, we're going to see the, 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 the radiant beauty of Christian forgiveness that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that from the book of Philemon. And I want to read that to you. It's a short letter. This morning, we're just going to really be focusing on verses 17 to 22. But I want to read it all to you since it's such a short letter. 
Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also, prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and understanding his word. From, from Philemon, we'll see the true blessing and brilliant radiance of Christian forgiveness that, that exalts Jesus Christ. Not just a forgiveness that just kind of barely gets there, but the true radiant forgiveness that flows from God's forgiveness of us through our Lord Jesus Christ into our lives and into the lives of others. So really, the, what we're looking at is forgiveness that exalts Jesus Christ. This isn't common. This is Christ exalting. It's priceless. Firstly, I want you to see from verse 17 that to exalt Jesus Christ, that, that we must accept the offender as we would accept the Apostle Paul himself. Right? Now, I know that Paul's not living on this earth, but you can use your imagination. Right? How would you receive a visit from the Apostle Paul? It would be a pretty exciting thing. Right? And one day you'll see him. But that's putting ourselves in Philemon's shoes, right? Paul is asking, right, Philemon to accept him, to accept uh, Onesimus as Philemon would accept the Apostle Paul himself. 
Now, this the verse 17 gets to really the heart of, of Paul's request. He's kind of hinted around. He says, I'm appealing to you. I'm appealing on behalf of my, my beloved brother Onesimus, who is formerly useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. But verse 17 brings us really to the heart of Paul's appeal and request. And, and notice he begins at verse 17. He says, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. There's a conditional statement. And, and in English... The conditional statement can kind of indicate, well, we don't know if it's going to happen. We don't, we're uncertain of, of whether that condition is true or not, but not so in the Greek. Right? Paul is stating his confidence that this condition exists. And you could translate it, since you regard me a partner in the faith, a partner, then receive him as you would me. And the Greek word partner it is related to the Greek word koinonia. It's that common, that sharing, sharing something in common. It speaks of the one who participates with another in, in some enterprise or, or joint matter of concern. It, it describes a partner or associate. And, and really partner is another way to talk about or another way to say what Paul said in the first verse in Philemon. And that's calling uh, Philemon a co-worker. A co-minister, in fact. So, just think about that. If, if you are a partner with the Apostle Paul, and if you're a Christian, you are, because you're a partner in the gospel, then, then you have the ability in Christ to forgive like this. Not in and of yourself, right? but in Christ. You can forgive this way. And because this condition is true... The Apostle Paul then launches into, into the, really the core of his request to receive Onesimus like Philemon would receive the Apostle Paul. The word accept, which can also be translated receive, is to accept the presence of the person with friendliness. You know what a person who you've had a disagreement with or you're on uncomfortable terms or they hurt you walks in the room, what happens? There's a coldness, right? There's a chill in the room. Well, to receive Onesimus, Philemon would have to receive him with warmth. It's a, it's a warm welcome. Uh, one commentator says, to receive, it's to receive kindly or hospitably, to admit to one's society and friendship, treat with kindness. Meaning when the person walks in the room, and, and, and as soon as, soon as uh, Philemon sees Onesimus, it's not cold, a cold chill. It's, it's a warm reception. It's reaching out to him with, with kindness and including him in one's society. And in that society, right, the slaves, we'll talk about that in the future, but the slaves are part of the family. Right? We know that from how Paul treats the family relations in Colossians and Ephesians. When he talks about what fathers and mothers are to do and children are to do, he deals with, with, with slaves and with masters. Right? That's, that's a family unit, right? in a sense. So that's, that's what Paul is, is asking Philemon to do here. And, and when the apostle Paul was, was caught in a shipwreck, when he was arrested and taken on the ship to, to Rome, he's making that long voyage to Rome, he told them not to. He told the, the sailors not to set sail, but that the uh, or the soldiers. But he didn't listen to them. Sailors wanted to move on. Anyway, the ship gets shipwrecked, torn to pieces, and they have to 
kind of flee for safety. Those who could swim could swim. Others on whatever was left of the ship to float them to safety. All of them came to safety. And when they get on the beach in Acts 28.2, we read this. And the natives showed us extraordinary affection. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. Right? So the natives weren't scared of them. They, they warmly welcomed. They say, it's cold. It's raining. You guys need to get warm so you don't get sick. Right? So that's the kind of reception that Paul is, is asking Philemon to do for a slave who had offended him, who had taken from him, who had wronged him. This is, a, this is really a, just a, a beautiful uh, a word picture for us of, of forgiveness, of receiving. Right? Notice Paul doesn't use the word forgiveness. But, but that's what it, it, it is in effect. It is, it is receiving someone who had formerly hurt us. And, and Paul uses this word in a few other places to speak about, one, how God receives us, and secondly, how Christians are to receive other Christians. And I'd like you to see this for yourself. So I'm going to have you turn your Bibles to Romans, the book of Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, and we're just look, I'm going to read the first four verses of that chapter. Romans 14, beginning at verse 1. Now accept, same word, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Right? Chapter 14 is all talking about just, just matters of conscience. Right? There's a, some people call it Christian freedom, but it's really how to live one another when you don't have the same opinion on, on how to glorify God on issues that aren't specifically addressed in the word of God. Paul says, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. That acceptance is like a warm welcome. It's not, well, you know, he doesn't, uh, well, he listens to different music, so he might be a corrupting influence on my children. No, or things like that, right? There's lots of these things in the American culture, lots of them that are very divisive within churches or can be. Paul says, accept, warmly receive. He says, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Here the issue is eating meat or vegetables. Meats were often sacrificed to idols then. Verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has, what? Accepted him. God's warmly welcomed that believer, though he has weak faith. God's warmly welcomed. He's received. How dare you reject someone God has received? That's, That's what he's saying. I wish more churches would pay attention to ver- these first verses, first four verses of Romans 14. That's a, that's a warm reception. I mean, again, we're not talking about sin here. We're talking about uh, matters of conscience. I mean, one believer thinks to honor God, he's got to do this. Another believer thinks to honor God, he's, he doesn't need to do that or he shouldn't do that. Right? On matters not addressed specifically in the word of God. Receive. That's how you should receive one another. Even if you have differences of opinion, receive one another. Don't judge. Because God has accepted him. God has received. Look at Romans 15. While you're there, you might, might be on the same page. You're looking at it. It is in my Bible. Romans 15. 
Let's read the first seven verses. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times is written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. Here's the conclusion of all of it. Therefore, what? Accept one another. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. He uses the same kind of analogy. Warm reception. Bear with one another. Right? And he notices that the word he uses is perseverance. He does that intentionally. Right? Do, do believers in churches just naturally get along perfectly with no offense, with... Uh, no hurt feelings, no miscommunication, no wrongs done. Oh, no, yeah, you, you know better. You've been in this church for a while, and you've been in other churches. But persevere. Why? Persevere. Right? Asking God for help to accept the other. Why? Because Christ has accepted you. And he's accepted that other person. If they're a genuine believer. So going back to Philemon. Paul is requesting. That Philemon. Give Onesimus. A warm. Welcome. Not just. You know one of those welcomes. You know where you kind of like. Well I'll, I'll let you in the door. Right. And uh, not one of those welcomes. Where you say well you know. There's a. There's an extra table. With some food set on it. In the kitchen. But we're going to eat out. In the other room. A warm welcome. Where you're, where you're actually seating that person maybe in a seat of honor. Where you would seat the Apostle Paul. Where Philemon would have sat the Apostle Paul for a meal. And that's why he adds this, this qualifier. Accept Onesimus as you would me. He's asking Philemon to, to visualize that that Onesimus is Paul and receive him like that. that. That is simply amazing to receive him as a beloved brother, to receive him as a fellow worker. Did he deserve that? No, he hadn't been that. But he's saying, receive him that way. Now, how would Philemon receive the Apostle Paul? Remember the Apostle Paul, as far as we know, never went to Colossae, never visited there. Right? So, Philemon would have encountered Paul probably in, in Ephesus or in the vicinity of Ephesus as Paul was ministering there for about two years. So here is an opportunity for the Apostle Paul to come to Colossae and to visit Philemon, to come to Philemon's home. Something Philemon would cherish. He would cherish the opportunity to have the great Apostle Paul come visit him, to be able to host him for a meal and invite, invite his friends over, maybe invite some unbelievers in the city over to hear the Apostle Paul proclaim Christ. 
What a reception. What a party. In in a holy sense. That's what Paul is asking Philemon to do for Onesimus. The runaway slave. The one who had hurt him and harmed him. That's pretty amazing. Now, now put yourself in his shoes. Try to put yourself in his shoes. Our goal of studying scripture is to take ourselves and, and, and try to put ourselves back in that scenario. Right? So imagine this. A- imagine receiving a letter from John MacArthur. Not a form letter. A personal letter. Handwritten from him. And he's writing to you about a person that has hurt you gravely. You fill in the blank with who that might be. But that person has heard the gospel through the ministry of John MacArthur and is growing in Christ. And now John MacArthur wants to send him back to you to see things restored. And so he writes to you asking you to receive this person who who has offended you gravely to receive him as you would John MacArthur. Now, imagine that. You could fill it in blank with your favorite or most edifying popular teacher. It doesn't have to be John MacArthur. But how would you receive John MacArthur? Or if you were still alive, how you would receive R.C. Sproul? How would you receive James Boyce if he were still alive? That, that'd be quite an honor to have someone like that in your home. That's exactly the, what forgiveness is meant to do. It's, it's not exactly that Wiping the slate clean. It's wiping the slate clean and then building it back better than it ever was before. It's not the relationship before Philemon, before Onesimus left Philemon. It's a new relationship created in Christ to glorify Christ. That's exactly what we're talking about. Now, as I was studying this, a couple other biblical examples came to mind. One of them you might not think about. Have you ever read the the reunion of Esau and Jacob. You know, Jacob deceived his brother, took his birthright. And when Esau found out, he was irate. He was really, he was holding a grudge. And, and he told himself that as soon as, as soon as his father died, he was going to kill Jacob. That's how mad he was. He wanted to kill him. So obviously Jacob, Jacob goes away for many years. Right? Fast forward, Jacob has many wives and um, many children. Right? And he needs to leave Laban and go back to the home, to his father's homeland. But in so doing, he has to face Esau. He knows Esau's there. And so he devises, he connives this, this plan where he could send his, his massive family in, in waves. Um, and then right before Esau gets there, he, he divides his family again. Again, I think that if Esau attacked, that maybe some of his family would survive. He, and Jacob goes out to Esau. And, and what does the scripture say? That in Genesis uh, 33, I'll just read it to you. Genesis 33, 1 to 4. It's an amazing, really amazing story. Jacob is absolutely terrified of Esau. Verse 33, or chapter 33, verse 1. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. Now, you know the end of the story, but put yourself in his shoes. 
you're fearful of a brother who before had promised to kill you. And you knew that. And you knew that you did him real harm. Imagine what's going through his mind. He divides the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He puts the maids and her children in front and Leah and her children on the next and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed it on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. He didn't gear up for battle. It's an act of contrition. An act that represented forgiveness. But he still feared Esau. What did Esau do? He mad? Order his troops to seize the goods, seize the children, kill the men and take everybody else as slaves? No. Look at verse 4. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. They wept. Esau couldn't have done that if God hadn't helped him. And God helped him to do that because he wanted to bless Jacob. That's just amazing. That's the kind of reception we're talking about. But there's one more in Genesis I want to point out. Genesis chapter 50 with Joseph and his brothers. Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. Fate, well, they wanted to kill him, but one of the brothers convinced him just to fake his, fake his death and sell him into slavery. And they did so. And he was in Europe, and he was sold into slavery, taken to Egypt. Fast forward, the brothers come to, to Egypt, know who he is, and Jacob brings, I mean, um, uh, Joseph brings his, his father um, and blesses them, provides for them. But then his father dies. And the brothers were extremely concerned to say the least they thought that maybe perhaps joseph had been kind to them because his father was alive in verse 12 we read this thus they come up with this plan after their father died thus the sons um sorry verse 15 when joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead they said what if joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph. And they wouldn't even tell him in his face. They sent a message. Of course they're lying here. Your father charged before he died saying. Thus you shall say to Joseph. Please forgive I beg you. The transgression of your brothers and their sin. For they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept. Uh, when they spoke to him. So they must have sent the message. And then spoke to him later. And his brothers came and fell down before him. And said behold we are your servants. But then nine, verse 19. Joseph said to them. Do not be afraid. For do I stand in God's place. Even as your judge. As for you. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result. To preserve many people alive. So therefore do not be afraid for I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Where that comfort? He comforted them. He hugged them. Right? He assured them that he was going to love them and take care of them. He's going to provide not only for them but for their little ones, their families. 
That's the kind of reception that Joseph gave them. That was only possible because Joseph recognized God's work in his life, God's work in his circumstances. Joseph trusted in God's providence. For those on the who are offended by someone else or hurt someone else, there's much to learn from Joseph's example. While true evil was done to Joseph, he trusted God's providence over the evil, that God intended that, that evil for good. And you could say the same exact thing of your circumstances, no matter what you've been through. God will produce good. And part of that good is forgiveness, right? In, in when, when God works out the circumstances to do so, like he did here. And, and beyond all these examples, we could point to the perfect example of our God himself. Now, by God's grace, not all of us are, are born uh, angry atheists who raise our fist against God physically. But we're all born rebels, We're all born with an innate sense of trampling on the name of God. We don't obey God perfectly. And some of us don't want to obey God at all. We greatly offend Him. And disobedience is high treason against God. I've said before that when you you sin against someone, the, the, the same sin has a different punishment based on the importance or the authority of the person you're sinning against. Right? For example, you could threaten my life and nothing will happen. Well, what will happen if you threaten the president's life? You're going to get a visit. Right? And you might be in big trouble beyond just a, little, a, 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 visit, a visit and answering some questions from the Secret Service. That's what I'm talking about. And yet, God, though we are guilty of high offenses against him sent his son to die on the cross for those offenses so that he could do what? Forgive us our sins and warmly welcome us. Not, not give us kind of the Heisman and not just let us into heaven, but to be there to welcome us. Right? To say, welcome to my family. As a child of God, and recently we studied the, the Trinity, and I even see this in a, there's a Trinitarian aspect to this welcoming us as children of God. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, him being Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So though, though you and I are, are, in a sense, guilty of nailing Jesus to the cross because of our sins, Jesus says, I'm going to die for you to make you my child, to welcome you as a child of God. Romans 8.16 speaks of the Spirit. The Spirit Himself, who is given to all true believers, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. He's working within us, assuring us that we are indeed children. God, if you're saved, He wants you to know that you're a child of God. That's not something that He wants you to be in doubt about. The Holy Spirit is is welcoming as a child of God. Welcoming you as a child of God. First John 3, 1 speaks about the Father. We see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Again, the Father welcoming us as children. And for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. 
Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We don't look like children of God. But we're going to be made perfectly in the image of Christ our Lord. So just think about all, all the different ways this could be applied. If, if you are an unbeliever or you've never experienced the kind of transformation in your life where you could love someone like that, you could forgive someone who, who really hurt against you, if you've never experienced that transformation, I plead with you to call upon the name of the Lord today. Today, he's inviting you to exercise saving faith in him so he can welcome you as a child of God. You don't have to be fearful of death or judgment. He loves you as a child of God. If you will just call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. And for those that are children of God already, are you working to forgive and to receive others as you have been forgiven? As you have been received? Are you working to, to a Christian forgiveness that exalts Christ by, by warmly welcoming someone who's, who's greatly hurt you? And in this scenario we're talking about, I just want to clarify, I got, uh, Onesimus is repentant. He wants to exalt Christ. He wants to make things right. There are circumstances sometimes where, where people, both sides, don't want to make things right. And both aren't children of God. And I want to address those kind of scenarios in a future message just talking about biblical reconciliation. So we'll, we'll work, work through that in a future message. But, but the letter of Philemon is, is talking about the circumstances of, of, a, of a brother and a brother being restored. Obviously, when, when Onesimus offended Philemon, he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a believer. He wasn't a brother. But now he is. And from this perspective, the, the radiance of, of Christian forgiveness is, is just brilliant. It's like a, a bright, priceless diamond on a black background of all that harm. And the radiance of the Lord's sun shining down and just causing that diamond to burst with color. But that's not all. It's not only radiant particularly for the person who is forgiven, but it can also be radiant when done correctly, radiant for the person who is doing the forgiving, the, the offended person. We see in verses 18 and 19, so if, you, if, you need, if you're not already there, go back to Philemon. Verses 18 and 19 talk about Paul wanting to set things right, wanting to make things right. Paul is offering a, to make forgiveness, rightly so, something based on something tangible and just. You see, the, the offender's wrongs and debts must be dealt with one way or another. Right? That, that's the basis of forgiveness, in a, in a sense. The basis is Christ himself. But, but in order to forgive, Christ had to die. There's a payment that was made. Notice, if you would, in verse 18... But, which is a contrast, it's, a, it's not a strong contrast, but it is a contrast. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. And again, we're faced with a conditional statement that assumes that the condition is true. Paul's not 
saying, well, maybe he offended you. Maybe he didn't. No, he's saying, since he has, he has wronged you. And since he owes you, right? Charge that to my account. The word wrong is to hurt or to harm, to do that which is unjust or unrighteous, or to mistreat another by acting unjustly towards them. So all all of that probably is included because Paul says there, if he has wronged you in any way, he just kind of casts the door open. He probably knew of, of what some of those were, but he might not know them all. So he says, if he has wronged you in any way, and he's assuming that Onesimus has, Charge that to my account. He uses the word owe. The word owe here speaks of a like a financial commercial transaction. Like if you were to go to a store and, and you had a credit with the store and, and but your credit was no good, so you had to charge it to somebody else's account in order to get that. So it's it's kind of the idea that word is used. It speaks of an obligation towards one another. That obligation could be financial, right? It's suggested that that Onesimus stole money. Um, and I, I think that's probably true because he would have needed some money to make the trip all the way to Rome. Right? So there was a financial obligation, but it's not merely limited to the finances. Right? So in the past, Onesimus was useless. He must have had a very poor work ethic. Right? His name was useful, but he was useless. So he was, in a sense, robbing his master of what he owed them. And in a sense, he had been gone. So his absence is, is, is in a sense, uh, something that he owed. All the work that Philemon would have otherwise, that, that Onesimus would have otherwise done for Philemon. So all of that is included. And, and, and Paul is saying, whatever that is, right? So however he has wronged you, if he's wronged you in, in anything, and he says uh, with that, if he owes you anything, anything, Charge that to my account. Now the word, the, Paul uses the word charge as a, as a technical term. Charge it, like I mentioned. Like a, you think of like a credit card. Put that on my account. Except it's someone else's credit card, not your own. Paul's saying, put it on my account. Paul wanted to compensate Philemon. Because what, he, what he's doing here is brilliant. He is removing the biggest obstacle probably to Philemon actually forgiving and receiving Onesimus. He's removing that obstacle. You could say he's, he's taking care of restitution. The restitution that Onesimus owed here. Onesimus owed a debt he could not pay. Paul offered and promised to pay his, his debt. I mean, just, just think about that. There's, there's so many parallels with what Christ does for us in this little letter of Philemon. It's so rich. I want to read to you just some, a passage from Romans 4. Romans 4, verses 1 to 5. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Different word, but similar concept. Different Greek word, but similar concept. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. 
But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. It's reckoned as righteousness. God declares him righteous. So Paul is is stepping in between the relationship of Philemon and Onesimus. Because Onesimus can't pay that debt. Paul's saying, I'll pay it. I'll pay it. He, he wants Philemon to credit Onesimus' account as paid in full. And to take that debt and transfer it over to Paul's account. And Paul said he would pay it. And, he, and he's quite emphatic about this. Going back to, to Philemon. He, he, he's writing this in his own hand. Look at what he says in verse. He says um, in verse 19. I, Paul. So he wants to be very clear here. Very emphatic. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. Now, we don't know if Paul wrote the whole letter by hand or he just wrote this part because he introduces Timothy in the beginning. It could be that Timothy was the amanuendus and he was doing the writing up to this point and then Paul took the pen in his hand. Or perhaps Paul wrote the whole letter. We really don't know. But we know that Paul wrote this part. He says, I am writing this with my own hand. It's a, it's a, it's a sig- signal of authenticity, of genuineness. He is not just um, putting the offer out there uh, thinking as, as an ingenuine offer. This is a genuine offer that Paul said, I will pay. How a prisoner in Rome is going to pay a debt like that, I do not know. But Paul would have found a way to do it. Right? He was hoping to be released. He could work uh, as, a, as a tent maker. Uh, perhaps others would help him to pay that debt. But he was going to ensure that that debt got paid. And, and he says there in verse 18, uh, right, verse 19, he says, I will repay it. Hey, it's just very emphatic. And then kind of in a parenthetical thought, he, he reminds Philemon that Philemon has a, a little bit of debt that he owes Paul. He says, not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. Paul wanted to remind Philemon of what probably Philemon didn't need to be reminded, but but Paul put it here anyway. And that is Philemon came to faith in Jesus Christ through Paul's ministry. So on a human level, Philemon owed Paul his own life. Paul had rescued his life. We know that only Christ saves. Only Christ forgives sins that that redeems a person. But God used Paul to rescue Philemon. And therefore Philemon owed him, owed Paul a debt. And and we don't know, we we actually don't know much at all about their circumstances or how that came to be or how much time Paul spent teaching and ministering to Philemon. But Philemon was a dear brother, a co-worker, so they would have spent tons of time together. Paul is there reminding him just to say, if, if, if that becomes an obstacle, which is a good principle, if you can, if you can forgive and, and let something go, then let it go. But if it's something that would be just nagging at Philemon repeatedly, every time that he would see Onesimus, he would be reminded of that debt. Paul's saying, I'll pay that. I'll pay it so that, so that you don't face that hurdle of remembering all that Onesimus owed you. I'll ensure that it gets paid. And so, the, to exalt Christ in, in, in forgiveness, we, we deal with the things that need to be dealt with. That reconciliation, the restitution. 
it's not always demanded, but but there there is there is restitution that needs to be made. And sometimes the sin is so great, you think, well, how how can how can restitution really be made? And that's when you look to the to to the fact that Jesus Christ has paid the price for all sins. Because there are some things, some hurts that people do, there isn't like a tangible way to, to make restitution. And so you look to the perfect example who has paid the restitution, and that's Christ himself. But in, but in this case, Paul is, is offering to pay that tangible restitution to make things right, to help Philemon do what he needs to do. And in verse 20 we see, to exalt Jesus Christ and forgiveness, you aim to refresh the hearts of the saints. So this is where this is where Paul is getting Philemon not to think about what's best for Philemon, but but to aim at refreshing the heart, and this this case, refreshing the heart of the Apostle Paul. This word "refresh" is the is the same word that we saw earlier in the epistle, in verse seven. It, it means to bring rest, refreshment, right? Like you're thirsty, you're tired, you get to sit down and you get to, to drink and eat a little bit. Your body feels refreshed, you have more vigor. Well, spiritually, that's what Paul is saying. And he, he's saying, Philemon, refresh my heart. Let me see you. And the way this is worded, he's, he's specifically referring to the refreshment that Paul's going to feel once he knows that Philemon has done what he asked him to do. He has received Onesimus this way. That will refresh Paul's heart. That will make him leap for joy, even if he's still imprisoned. Now, is this type of forgiveness really possible? Is it really possible to take someone who's, who's, who's greatly offended you and hurt you? M- maybe even wanted to kill you before and receive them like this? It's really e- relatively easy to talk about this, talk about forgiveness like this, but putting it into action can be very difficult. This is, this is not easy stuff. This is stuff that's hard. And the only way you're going to be able to do it is to depend upon Jesus Christ to, to help you through this. Is it really possible? Well, we have Philemon as an example, beyond the ones we've already looked at, beyond Esau, beyond Joseph. We have Philemon as an example. How do we know that Philemon actually received Onesimus like this? Well, it's not stated explicitly in Scripture. But note this, in verse 21, Paul had great confidence in Philemon. He says, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. I'm not wasting my effort here, Philemon. I know that you're going to be obedient. You're saying, obedient to whom? I think ultimately to God. It's an obedience to God. Paul's making the request, but God is the one who's commanding a brother to forgive a brother. Right? But and he's saying, and he and he says there in the end of verse twenty or uh, twenty one, he says, um, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Now there's some some uh pastors and Bible scholars think that that what Paul is hinting at is is freeing Onesimus, uh, setting him free as a slave. But I think what he is doing here, remember how he started, he is appealing to Philemon's love. He is not dictating anything. He's pleading 
to receive him. But he's like, I know you're gonna, I know you're gonna receive him. I have confidence that you're gonna receive him. But I know you're gonna do even more. He doesn't specify the more. Why? He's gonna love Philemon's love for Onesimus. Ultimately, Philemon's love for God. Philemon's love for the Apostle Paul. Define what that looks like. And whatever that whatever that was, that's what he did. Paul has that confidence in him. It, it might have been that Philemon freed Onesimus. Or it just might be that he kept him as a slave, but treated him like the Apostle Paul. So not the kind of slavery that is so commonly comes to mind when you think about like American slavery. This is this. He became the good master, is what I'm saying, providing everything that Onesimus would need. And though it's not addressed here, I think implicitly we can guarantee that one of the instructions that Paul gave Onesimus is, is like, when you go back, I want you to think about serving Philemon the way that you've served me. You know how joyfully you've served me? How tirelessly you've served me. You've taken care of me. You've sought to take care of all my needs. Paul talks about in ministering. How Onesimus ministered to him. He's saying go do that. For your master. Go do that for your brother. Serve him as a beloved brother. And, and you just have to remember that. Jesus said it's, it's, it's those who serve others. That are actually the greater. Not those who are served. And then you look further in verse 21. Paul had confidence. Paul planned to visit. In verse 22. We see at the same time prepare me a lodging. So at the same time you're receiving. You're receiving Onesimus. Warmly welcoming. Prepare me a place. I'm going to come for a visit. Some might think well that's kind of a threat. No it's not a threat. Onesimus. I mean Philemon would have warmly welcomed a visit from the Apostle Paul. And I think it expresses, it's a bit subjective, but, it, but I think it expresses Paul's confidence that Philemon would do exactly what he said. I'm going to come, I'm, I'm going to celebrate. I want to celebrate. I want to see the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. And I, wanna, I want my heart to be fully refreshed. I want to see it in action. I, th- I think that's what he's saying here. And we can also say that we know that Philemon answered the request because this letter of Philemon is included in the book of the Bible. The whole reason it's included here is it's, it's a whole book on forgiveness. Such an important topic. Surely it was listened to. I think we can have confidence about that. But this isn't something that just happened in Bible times. This is something that even goes on in our day. To, to think of a, an example, there, there are multiple examples I could point to, but one in particular that really moved me as I was studying this was the example of Steve Saint and Micaiah. Now, some of you will recognize the name of Steve Saint. Some of you will not. But Steve Saint is the son of Nate Saint, one of five missionaries who were butchered in the jungles of Ecuador by a very violent tribe. No one had ever made contact with them before. And these missionaries desperately wanted to make contact with them. Uh, Steve's father, Nate, was a pilot. And had figured out a way to, to land a little Piper airplane on a little sandy stretch of a river. 
in order for them to make contact. It wasn't their first contact. They'd done some other things beforehand. But they, he found a way to land that little plane so that the five of them could make contact with this tribe that nobody else, no Christian for sure, had, had um, ever contacted before. And those five men were speared to death. And the world watched. Many prayed. But the story of, of Steve... Saint and Micaiah is truly amazing. Micaiah was one, as a young warrior, was one of those who speared Nate Saint. So Micaiah killed Steve's father. And due to some amazing circumstances, grace of God, and some courageous people like Elizabeth Elliot, Rachel Saint, Rachel was Nate's sister, they went back to those people and lived out the gospel and taught them the gospel. And that tribe of warriors was converted, including Micaiah. After his father's death, Steve attended school in in Quito, which is a um, small city near the village, or not too near, but near enough that he could go back and forth and visit. And and Steve would often go into the... the, um, to the jungles. He would spend uh, the summers there. Steve Saint was baptized. By the Wadani. The Wadani of the people that killed his father. He was baptized by the Wadani people. In the river where his father died. In 1995. The Wadani elders asked Steve. To come permanently live with them. To, to help them. And, and they actually inspired him. To try to figure out way better ways to do missions that actually help the the native Christians there to do ministry for themselves and not just have other people do ministry for them. And he actually ended up coming back to the states um, to help move that whole process along. In two thousand five, Steve wrote a memoir called "The End of the Spear." It gives you many of the details. Recommend you read it. Uh, that memoir was turned into a major film in 2006. And in Micaiah's death, and, and actually interesting enough, um, I saw Micaiah and, and Steve Saint together at a shepherd's conference at Grace Community Church with a little Piper airplane um, out, out front on the, on the patio speaking together about the love of Christ, the forgiveness of God. I saw it lived out. At Micaiah's death, Steve spoke affectionately of him as grandfather, grandfather Micaiah, and reflected upon the impact of his father's death. The term tragedy accompanied virtually every radio, newspaper, and magazine article that covered the death of those five missionaries. Tragedy, senseless. But Steve says this. But 64 long years later, it seems clear that Genesis fifty twenty was about to come true again. What, God, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And there has been no greater ambassador in our age of that message than the life of Grandfather Micaiah. That's the forgiveness of God. That's the radiance of God. 
that could take two people that, that by nature and by human explanation would hate each other and move them to love each other? Steve spoke of the wonderful reception. Just think about the reception in heaven that Micaiah got by those five missionaries. And some of the women who preached the gospel to them preceded him in death. He was somewhere around 90 when he died. But think about the warm welcome that Micaiah got. Forgiveness is like a diamond formed by God's providence of heat, pressure, the right ingredients, God bringing that together. Only God could do that. As we close, I want you to think of one other passage in Romans. Romans 5. You can turn there, just listen. Romans 5, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have attained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And this hope does not, this, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. There's a process here. Sometime I'll preach that passage, but I just want to point you to it. There is a process here. We exult in our what? In our good times? We exult when everything's going right. What does it say? We exult in tribulation. Tribulation. Think Steve felt tribulation? What if he just ran away? Or Elizabeth Elliot had just run away? Never to face the circumstances. But they didn't. They did what? See the process. Knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. Perseverance is required. This is perhaps the biggest reason why the church in the United States is so immature. We don't persevere in the tribulation. We just run away from it. Somebody offends you? Run away. Some church leader offends you? Oh, there's 10 other churches to pick from. You just go to one of those. There's no perseverance developed. And that's what you have to do with one another as well. If someone offends you, you persevere. Because if you don't persevere, guess what? Look at what, look what perseverance brings about. Proven character. Proven character. Not just character. Proven character. That's, that's a character that's been tested. That's gone through tribulation and has persevered. That is the, the diamond that we speak about. To use that analogy. And, and he says that proven character, hope. A hope which doesn't disappoint because ultimately it's grounded in the love of God. And God will bring these things to pass. So that, that's the pressure and the temperature and the conditions that I'm talking about where God forms diamonds. Diamonds of forgiveness. We, be, we must be people who persevere in tribulation that God would bring about proven character, proven character hope. And all of this for his glory and honor. May God use this in your life to help you be forgiving like that. Let's pray.
our Lord, we are just in awe of you and of your forgiveness and all that you have done for us. I pray that you would use your word of forgiveness to make us people who we don't run away from tribulation, though we don't like it. But you would make us people who persevere in tribulation so that you would form proven character in us. A character that exalts Christ. A character that does the hard thing of forgiving someone who so deeply hurt us. Oh God, just exalt us as your people to, to be like Christ. That we might exalt you. Make us to be people who are just readily forgive and depend upon you to richly supply all that is needed so that we can forgive like this. It's in the name.